Hi, thanks for joining us for this message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. We pray that you are blessed by it. If you'd like to know more about Red Church and its ministries, or if you'd like to support us financially, you can find out more by heading to redchurch.org.au. So just wanted to welcome you. Um, uh, if you are a visitor, lots of visitors at the moment, lots of people moving to Melbourne. Uh, so welcome to you. Uh, welcome if you're exploring church. Um, we have every week people who wouldn't necessarily call themselves followers of Jesus, uh, but are just exploring. And uh, welcome to you. And welcome to you if you're a regular part of us as well. I'm going to recap the last few weeks because we've been in the midst of a series and uh, it's called Following is Focus. Following is Focus. We began with the story in the Gospels of when Jesus called a particular group of people to follow him. He was beside the Sea of Galilee, and some of them were fishermen. And it says they put down their nets, got out of the boat, and followed Jesus. And we noted that to follow, you must have focus. To follow is to say no to a bunch of other options and to choose to follow Jesus. And we realized that as we've explored this for those people at that time to leave behind their father's craft, to leave behind the region of Galilee, to leave behind everything they knew that defined who they were and to follow Jesus meant a huge amount. But for us, it also is a call that comes in a moment when we find ourselves really distracted. We find ourselves disorientated. We don't have a lack of freedom. In many ways, we have too much freedom, too many choices. And we've been talking about this. So we explored that week one. Week two, we learned what focus was. And we explored the concept of focus. We, if you remember, if you were here, I brought along a little spray and talked about that water, when it's focused, can actually cut through, when it's, when it's hyper-pressurized, can cut through concrete. Over long periods of time, when it repeatedly does something, it can erode a coastline and carve out beautiful rock formations. But almost what's happening to us is like the spray, I sprayed it. Instead of it being in force, it actually is atomized. And if you just spray, it's a lovely feeling on your face for a moment, but then it disappears not to exist again. And we looked at the way that that word vapor is actually used in the scriptures of a, of a life that's vain. It's, it's a life that's, that means nothing and contributes nothing. Last week, Britt then, week three, uh, talked about the importance of the Holy Spirit in equipping us for this task. The Spirit comes to bring life. And we talked about different activities that focus us instead of scattering us. Could be baking bread or choosing to sit and converse with someone and listen to what they're saying. Could be gardening. And there's these focusing activities. Now, in many ways, we could have ended last week because I think we'd sort of accomplished what we'd set out to do in one way that we talked about how the contemporary individual is going through this process where we're more scattered, we're diffused, we're disorientated, we're distracted. And we looked at remedies, looked at what the scripture said about that. But I just really felt that there was more to explore this week. And what I want to look at, what does this look like on a bigger picture for us? Not as just individuals, but for us as humans together. And to do that, I want to now move ahead to later on in Jesus's ministry. At the beginning, 
When we looked at week one, the call that came beside the lake, Jesus had just emerged from the wilderness. He'd been baptized by John the Baptist and his public ministry. He's announcing that the axis of the world had moved, that a new phase had come into human history, what he called the kingdom of God, that a kingdom was being built. It was not being built as Herod built his kingdom. Herod was the king who ruled uh, Israel at that time. And Herod was viewed by most of his followers as an illegitimate, corrupt king, and he, he was. So he just compensated by building lots of stuff. But what Jesus was announcing was that a new kingdom was coming. It was a kingdom built by God, and it wasn't necessarily a kingdom built with stone, with huge monuments. It actually was something that God was doing through a people. And Jesus was calling people to him. And so at this point, Jesus has then entered into ministry. He's been preaching, announcing the good news of the kingdom. He's been healing people. He's been showing that this kingdom actually isn't just something for the elites at the top. He shows compassion to a lady who cannot stop bleeding, and that's actually made her richly impure in terms of the culture at that time and finds herself continually on the edge. He shows compassion to people who have leprosy, a disease which many people were afraid of. He shows compassion to people which actually many people hated, who were actually profiteering and corrupt like a tax collector. But at this point, where we're going to go is then Jesus enters into Jerusalem, which is like the center, the capital. And at the center of the capital was the temple. And the temple was in the Old Testament, the place where God's presence resided. But by this stage, the temple had become corrupt. Herod's elites ran the temple. They're called the Herodians. And some of it was for profit. Something was wrong. The prophets had actually talked about the presence of God leaving the temple, and there was a debate as whether it completely had left. And so Jesus enters into this confrontation. He comes into Jerusalem, arrives, goes into the temple, turns over the tables that people are profiteering. And in a sense, what's happening at this moment is God is now come in human form in Jesus, and there's this new moment which is beginning in the world. And so this confrontation happens between those who want the old order to continue. There's the Herodians, who I just mentioned. He has a confrontation with them. There's the Sadducees. And what they want to do is they want to update Judaism, following God, to the latest Greek thinking. The Greek thinking was like, I don't know, the, the popular thinking of the day. It was in the, if they had newspapers, it was, it was the mass media thinking of the day, of the elites. There was another group of the Pharisees, and they had their vision of what needed to happen to make things right. And so this story is Jesus then coming into a, a discussion with them. It begins at Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40. It says this, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees in this discussion where the Sadducees went away, couldn't say anything. This other group, the Sadducees, this other faction, the Sadducees, I did that in the first sermon. Sadducees. <laughs> They're a hybrid group. <laughs> Virtually no archaeologists know about this, but I just invented them. The Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law. Now, this is not just like a lawyer. This is someone who's an expert in the scriptures. The Hebrew scriptures were known as the Torah, which means law. 
the law of God. So an expert in the law tested him with this question. Teacher or rabbi, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now they're trying to trip him up here. This is like a duel. This is like a rap battle. Just making it relevant for the kids. Um, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, I think this is crucial because Jesus is saying, I'm here, I'm in the temple, and there's this confrontation that's happening. And a new order is breaking out in the world. And if you want to boil it down to its essence, it's this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. The temple is corrupt because people partially love God. Herod sort of followed God, but then also followed other gods. Herod was called to be king of Israel, but he was constantly doing dodgy deals with the Romans. And what Jesus is saying here is we need to get back to the essence of what God has called us to, to love God with all of our hearts, all of our soul, all of our mind. This is focus. And then as we do this, there is this overflow where our neighbor is loved. But notice it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a sense too that if you're, gonna, if you're filled with self-hatred, shame, and you don't like yourself, you're not going to be a great person to love your neighbor because you don't actually really love yourself. And what it's talking about here is not a Whitney Houston, the greatest love of all, where she believes the children are our future. But actually what this is, is a love that is shaped by God, set by God. So what we see here, what Jesus is getting at, this new order that the temple is now, and Jesus prophesies the temple will fall, that this is not the center, that the center is somewhere else, and it's not in a temple, it's in a people. And this temple language continues to get used, but it's actually the new temple is a living temple of people. It's not in stone, it's amongst humans. And so what we see is focus adds form to love. Focus adds form to love. Focus materializes good intent. Now, very few people have a problem with love. Love is everywhere. In fact, love is everywhere so much in our culture that it's ill-defined. You can go to a gift store and you'll find little love hearts for everything. I love this. I love that. I love New York City. You'll hear people in the same sentence talk about the father I saw this in the, in, in the paper the other day, a father who tried to rescue his son at the beach and it saved his son but lost his life. And people talked about how much this father loved his son. If you go into the city, as I did in January, and visit the War Memorial, you go into the middle of the War Memorial, you've got the centre of the Anzac story, which so defines Australia and New Zealand, of people who gave their lives for their mates. So we have this high thing of people who love someone or something so much that they completely give over of themselves. But that very word love, we then say, I love pistachio ice cream. Ah, I love what you're wearing. 
Do you love the smell of baking bread? I love that song. I love that movie. Love is everywhere. It's this sort of hippie concept that all the world needs is love, as the Beatles sung. We're also big on, it's almost even boiling down to now, it's not even that so much, it's now even like just don't hate. So we have this idea of like, hates this, hate that, like, so just don't hate. It's not even imploring people to love, we just implore people not to hate. And we, and we sort of like, we put a bunch of posters up on, on, this, on, on the Melbourne Metro and encourage people not to hate and utopia will break out. But there's this sense that our love is ill-defined. It's an intent and it's good, but actually we need something then to materialize that love in the world. Otherwise, it's this thing which we talk about, we hold up, we have movies about it. Is it romantic love? What is it? We don't know, but very little then breaks into the world. And what Jesus is talking about in this scripture is a love which flows out of how Jesus loves us. So there's two focuses. Focus, which is almost like a 3D printer, printing in the world love in a form. So it's not just this intent. You can love someone and never tell them, never do anything for them, and it's just a nice little sentimental feeling you have in the back of your head. But when you sacrifice for that person, when you serve that person, that's when love becomes real in the world. So that's number one, the 3D printer, bringing it into the real world. But the second part in that by doing this, by, by stepping into this, that focusing upon God in worshiping God also forms us, our body, soul, spirit. As the scriptures say, our whole nefesh, the whole of the person is then changed by God's love. The love that is not focused on God simply becomes self-directed love. We must first love God. And by loving God, we learn to love God as God loves. And this rearranges how we love ourselves and our neighbor. If we simply just have this amorphous, vapor-like love, if we love ourselves as narcissists, our neighbor has not got much hope. And so what Jesus is doing is, in this confrontation with the temple, he's inviting us to be a new people, a living temple, where that love lives amongst us, the love of God. And the scriptures talk about this concept. It's a different kind of love between people. It uses words like fellowship. And it sounds a bit strange and old and daggy. But what it's really trying to get at is this sense of a group of people who are animated by the love of God. And that love flows into each other and then flows into our neighbor in the world. But this kind of love, this kind of fellowship doesn't happen without focus. And I believe this is of absolute, utter importance at this moment. And we're going to dig into this. Because the great challenge facing the church is that our love will become formless. It's not that people all of a sudden turn terrible, but just that the future nightmare scenario is a bunch of nice Christians who have nice intent, but that love never is printed, imprinted in the world. It never has a form. It never has a focus. And thus it becomes vapor. And the church and God's great plan and project for us disappears. I instead 
think that God has a heart for renewal in this moment, that Jesus' heart to see a living temple built is active and alive in Melbourne in the 21st century. And that God's dream is to see people who realize how much God loves them, not because of who they are, what they do, but because he gave his son on the cross to take on our sin. And that when that takes hold of us, it changes us. And you have a church which is alive, this people of God. Now, this is happening at a key moment. And to explain this, I have my panel up here. And the panel I'm going to invite forward is just me. But we've actually been on a progression throughout history. Now, I talked about the, the fishermen, people like Simon Peter, who when they left the nets, they left the boat, they followed Jesus. And they lived in a way that most of people have lived throughout history and many people live in the world today, where later on in the New Testament, it talks about the fact that people noticed that the disciples had a particular accent and had a Galilean accent and people laughed at this. Now, an accent or a language is really important because actually it, it, it speaks of who you are, where you come from. When everyone's speaking the same accent or speaking the same language, you don't notice it. But as soon as you go somewhere else and you notice your accent is different, you realize that your story, your life is different. And many people throughout history, the prime way that they've understood their identity is through a people, a tribe, a nation, a community. And they don't have the question that many of us have, that Derek Zoolander once asked of who am I? Because they know who they are, because they're surrounded by a bunch of other people and they're part of that people. And it's a world not of a lot of choice. We talked about in week one that for the disciples who were fishermen, the brother Zebedee, that they had to leave father Zebedee behind in the boat. And they had a trade, and their trade was fishermen. They had a region. They were a particular kind of people. They were observant Jews. So they didn't have the question of who am I? They were observant Jews from Galilee. They were fishermen, and they were going to continue being fishermen. In this world, you don't choose who you get married to. You have an arranged marriage because... There's not a lot of freedom, but there's a whole lot of identity and knowing who you are. So when the call of Jesus comes to the disciples, their thing is actually to step out of that and freak out as they're looking behind at Father Zebedee in the boat, wondering what's going on, to step into another world where their accent is strange, to step out of this world and step into what God is inviting them to. So they had a bunch of really strong ties and binds, which almost have bound them into this place, this tri sense of tribal identity, a sense of who they were. They did not have the question, who am I? They began to have that as perhaps as they stepped out. But there's a whole bunch of thick ropes binding their identity and who they were. Now, one of the big changes that happens in the world that emerges out of the West is that kind of thinking is, is, is undermined by a new kind of thought. That actually what humans need is freedom. And there's some truth to this. And so in the contemporary world, individualism grows up. As people move from here, 
And perhaps they're working in the countryside and they come to a city, perhaps in the, in the 18th century or 19th century, coming from the English countryside to somewhere like London. And all of a sudden here, you still may have the accent, but you don't necessarily have to do the trade that perhaps your father or mother did. If your father was a fisherman, maybe you could choose to be a painter or an accountant or a soldier. You'll still probably get married, but you may choose who you get married to. Here, there's a sense of not having these thick ties to land, people, but you sort of create new ones. And so what we see as individualism kicks off is all these things grow like clubs, rotary, lions. Coffee houses at the beginning are actually places where people who have moved from the countryside who want to find other people who talk about the same stuff, they actually come together and they create these sort of new kinds of community in the cities and people get tied to places like neighborhoods. And this is a new invention in the world. Now what's interesting is, we often talk about that versus this, strong ties versus weaker ties. But if you have come of age or lived through the last 15 years, and if you're one, you haven't. That's such a strange comment. Something different has been happening. What we have seen is not just a continuation of this, but an absolute intensification. And so we're officially now in a new stage, and it's actually not this anymore. In this new stage, that person there might occasionally wonder, like Derek Zulanger did, who am I? But this person here asks the question of who am I all the time? And they ask the question of what I should be doing. And they ask the question continually, as soon as they get something, it's undermined by a sense of worry and anxiety that perhaps you've made the wrong choice. The people on the far side over there, the Galilean fishermen or whoever, someone living, working the land or being part of a tribe or whatever, most of history, they've not asked the question like, what is my freedom? What am I going to do with it? These people had no freedom. These people had freedom. These people have almost a suffocating sense of freedom where you can be anything you can be. These people down here, they've got a very strong sense of identity. These people have to craft their identity. These people feel this tremendous burden that I have to self-create and not only self-create, but continually put that out to the world and get feedback about who I am all the time. This, the sense of, of meaning, is not through being in relationships where, okay, you've, you've, you've left there and you've created these new types of groups with people you relate to. Here is meaning is felt from running from commitments. If this is strong ropes and binds between people and this is a, a string, this is no connections. So here, arranged marriage, Choose who you want to get married to. Here, probably not going to get married. And if you're married, you're constantly measuring your marriage and whether you did the right thing or made the right choice. If you live somewhere, you're constantly worrying, am I living in the right place? If you're in a job, is this the place where I could get the most meaning? You're constantly overwhelmed by the sense of utter freedom. This is the place in which Jesus asks us to follow. The disciples had to walk away from those thick ropes that bound them in place to who they were and take on the identity of Christ. But for us now, we find ourselves answering that call in this place, 
And this is a tremendous, tremendous challenge. And this can completely reorientate because this is the water in which we swim, how we understand what it is to follow Jesus. Because this place places above relationship and identity. It places above them experience, excitement, and stimulation. This is the constant distraction. And so church, when Jesus begins to do something in our lives and we're still sitting in this seat, we can act as disciples but do so without focus. Where our faith becomes reorientated just purely around events and pure experience. Where we have boundless information but sometimes literal transformation. Where we can access continually spiritual experiences and spiritual experiences are great but often we can just have spiritual experiences but not spiritual maturity. And we feel the sense of the lack of community that is all throughout the culture, but we're unable to rectify it. So we want community, but we actually don't know how to do it. And we're surrounded by a bunch of other people who are trying to build community, but don't know how to do it. And so we church shop. Trying to find it somewhere elusively, not realizing that it's actually in the very culture that we live or many people just drift from church altogether. And as the global shift towards this happens, and increasingly the, the, the household that defines the world is one person living alone, the church takes on that form too. And this affects us as individuals, but also begins to weaken the church. It weakens movements. It weakens the potential of renewal. And it weakens the form of love being materialized in the world that Jesus called us to. This is why in this moment, renewal comes, and this is why following is focus. Our renewal needs a focus. Our love needs focus. Without the focus of following Jesus, our love will be misdirected. This is why Jesus replies to the Pharisee, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Our understanding of love must be totally rewired. How we've been set up to live must be rewired from this to the heart, mind, soul of Christ. We have to swap out this operating system for the kingdom of God operating system. Stanley Howarass, American theologian, says this. The challenge that Jesus presents to us is to learn that one is loved by God so that one is thus able to love God and others. We are loved so that that love overflows into others. Jesus' love is sacrificial. Jesus, who should have come as a triumphant king with a magnificent retinue behind him, comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, which is like a I don't know, second-hand Toyota hatchback. He washes the disciples' feet instead of being waited on. He comes as a servant because God's love is service. Continue with the quote. Now, if we're going to love like that, we can't just... So I'm not continuing with the quote for those listening. It, if we at this point just hear the command, go and love love everyone, we're going to swap out the vaporous love of a culture which never reaches form in the world. Now, 
Continuing the quote. Speaking of Jesus' love, Stanley Harris says this, such a love requires a lifetime of training in which we're given the opportunity to have our self-centeredness discovered and overwhelmed. Let me just say that again. Such a love requires a lifetime of training. Love needs training. It's not just like feel love, get in a big hippie circle and love everyone. This requires training. It's a different kind of love. This is a countercultural, otherworldly, kingdom of God, heaven coming down kind of love. And it's a love which undermines our self-centeredness. This is not a self-centered, narcissistic love. This is a love, and Brit spoke about this last week. When you focus, in a sense, you will be overcome, overwhelmed. It will conquer you. And Jesus' love comes as love, but also conquers us. Because when you really get to the nuts and bolts, the nitty gritty, sometimes we don't feel like we can be loved. If you see someone truly loved in a relationship, in a friendship, you will see times when people push back on love, undermine it, subvert it, stuff it up because there's something inside of us which needs to be healed. Simply loving people without any focus in the vaporous love of the 21st century doesn't change anything. If we're going to follow Jesus, our lives need to be focused upon living in that apprenticeship, that lifetime of training. We need to step into it. That's why God created the church. That's why God created fellowship. That's why God created a community of people in which we learn to love, not like the world loves, but as Jesus loves. Otherwise, if we don't do this. Now, when I was in, in primary school, it was just the end of this technology. But before photocopiers, before 3D printers, there was this machine called photostat machines. And they were weird. And they're basically a way of photocopying paper. And they would like get some older teacher who obviously they didn't care about because the chemicals were so harsh. And you would just smell it like three rooms away. And this, this, they got this machine, it was like a roller. And they would put the, like, it was like printing almost. They put this like poison, I don't know if it was poisonous, but it smelled poisonous. And they would roll it and they would print something. And, you know, this poor, like, you know, almost retiree teacher would end up retiring because they're overcome by the fumes. And they would just print it off. And you'd get it, and you'd get it, and you'd pass it, and, you'd, and it'd be purple. And it'd be like a normal photocopying piece of paper with purple ink that someone had left in water for a week. It was all, like, smudgy and weird, and you would get it, and you'd get it on your fingers, and if you took it home, like, in a week, it would fade. It was purely rubbish. That's what the church will be, a fading imprint of our concept of what Jesus' love is without Jesus leading us and following us. We don't need that. We don't need the photo stat. We need a 3D printer. Have you ever seen a 3D printer where it takes this concept and just makes it in the real world, a replica of the pattern of heaven in the world? That's what focus does. Focus put bones on things. So how do we do this? How do we do this when we've been formed by this and we hear this and we have the intent? How do we do this as a people when all we've known is to have commitment phobia, keep options open, be afraid of sacrifice, always shop well, 
Look for the best bargain. How do we do this when that has shaped us? I just want to just give you three very practical things. The first one's really about time. It's about time. Everyone in here may have different amounts of money. You may have different assets, different cars, homes, investments, lack of homes, cars, and investments. But every one of us has time. And God has placed us in the world in time. And so how we choose to spend our time is really key. And Daniel mentioned as he was praying that, in a sense, there's this sacrifice that we offer up to God. And with the temple now not there, we don't need to offer animals as was offered. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice upon the cross. But we do come and we serve with our time. And we need time with God to be changed. During the World Cup, I had a fascinating podcast. And basically these super nerdy sports scientists had worked out that nations who do best at the World Cup, they can trace it back and it goes back to how many minutes those nations had their kids at like eight and nine spending with the ball at their feet. And they could translate that minutes into then success at a World Cup level. But it wasn't just how many minutes they had the ball at their feet. It was also learning in games which actually someone had to win and there was like tension moments. So it was a quality and quantity of minutes. I found in my life that when I give God time, that that has this effect. Yesterday I went to the prayer room. There's some stuff wrestling through and I went to the prayer room and there's an element, I always go to the prayer room like, oh, is this going to do anything? And oh, I'll just go and, and I've got other things to do. And then when you get there, by the end of the time, every single time I'm like, I know that God did something that I could have never seen had I not put that time, that minutes before God. What are the minutes? And if you think about what is this whole thing we've been talking about in it, it's about the attention economy. And what the attention economy is doing is stealing minutes off every person in this room. So you sit down to check the weather on your phone and an hour later, you're looking at some stupid website you never intended to look at or someone's Instagram profile. And so we as disciples must ask the question, God, where do you want me to spend minutes? I realize there are moments when I am leading now, that things will come to me that I was, when I was like 14 or 15, I was sitting at a table at a dinner with my parents and they were talking to some Christian leader and I somehow in, in, like, took something into my body, absorbed something as a 14, 15 year old bored kid sitting at a table because I was around certain people who were fully following God with their lives and somehow it just imprinted on me. So we need to ask the question, if we're going to have focus, focus comes from spending time. The person who's going to craft a beautiful thing out of wood, they have to spend time. They have to put some minutes in. I'm not saying spending every moment of your day. We have to actually live our lives. We're called to contribute in the world. But disciples ask the question, where do I spend minutes? Okay, well, next thing. Well, where do you mean, Mark? Where are minutes? I'm obsessed with the history of revivals and renewals. And one thing that always hits me about the history of revivals and renewals, those moments when God turns things around and the church goes from decline and secularizing to revival and renewal, 
The incredible stories. I love the stories of John Wesley and, and, and George Whitfield when they would preach to all these people in these really difficult areas and thousands upon thousands of people would just appear in a park and they'd preach the gospel to them. People would become Christians. And if you read Wesley's journals, he talks about he'll go to Newcastle and 22,000 people turn up. He, he gets on a horse and goes to Bristol and 8,000 people turn up, of like miners, people who, who were digging underground and, and they all of a sudden hear the gospel of Jesus. But as I've read and dug into it more, I noticed something. Wesley was not that excited about 22,000 people turning up. What he was excited about, and you'll literally read it, he'll go, 22,000 people turn up in Newcastle, but then 880 decided to join one of our societies. What were societies? They were like patent intensives. It was a second space. It wasn't just the church service or the evangelistic rally. It was a second space where perhaps you learn to pray, perhaps you sit with others, and together you ask the question, how can I be reshaped according to God's love, and how can my self-centeredness be overwhelmed in this place by God's love? That can be a small group, that can be another place. And what Wesley did brilliantly was that he lived in a time when people were moving from the countryside from here to here, and just as people were creating cafes and societies, he created his own societies, small groups, where people would gather and go deeper. Those who were hungry could gather and go deeper and become like a kind of remnant. Now, what's interesting, we're still as the church running that script. We're still running it. We have small groups and stuff like this. But if you talk to people across the church, what they're saying is you can get a small group today and you can get 20 people and it's sorted, got a leader, it's meeting in Baldwin, here's 20 people. But the problem is only five turn up every week and it's five different people. Because we're often finding ourselves distracted. This leads into the third point. How we give time to God is really important. Secondly, doing that in a second space where we can be discipled and do that with others is really key. But the third point is we have to keep doing this. Focus is a repetition. The wood carver to carve a hunk of wood into a beautiful sculpture needs to keep doing it. Focus requires repetition. Byung-Chul Han says this, repetition stabilizes and deepens attention or focus. But, he says, in this world, chasing new stimuli, excitement and experience, we lose the capacity for repetition. No one means for this to happen. No one means for a discipleship community to fall over or churches to lose coherence and become vapor-like because we've been taught to, to fear repetition, to, to, to worry about being bored. So you get to this point where repetition is something where you have to be confronted with your own self-centeredness and the need for God to overwhelm you. When you do something multiple times, what it does is it pushes past the pain point where your flesh is rebelling against what God wants for you. So there's a point where you have to stay in place. And when you stay in place, when you linger, you're often confronted with yourself. And when that happens, the presence begins to move through us because we're present. This gives love form. We become the focus of Jesus' love in the world. 
giving us form. If you pushed me, if you really pushed me, and luckily this is not being recorded, it is. Yes, I could give you a sociological reading of why we're so distracted today. I could give you a sociological reading of why people want to steal our attention to make money. But if I'm really honest, when I look underneath the surface, I think there is a spiritual conspiracy by the powers and principalities to turn the church in this time into vapour, to turn you into vapour, to take the potential of renewal, the living temple, people filled with the love of God, and to just make us distracted. And our tombstones, will say, had a lot of experiences. But the question will hang in the air, did any of it ever take form in the world and build something? And so this series, I think, is, is, is a vision series in a very different way because this is the bare bones that I tell you now. And I talk to pastors all over the world every week. We've got a podcast and we get emails all the time. This is what everyone across the world, this is the challenge much of the church is facing. Good, nice people who want to follow God but we're just so distracted and everything's turning into vapor. So what if this moment God wanted to tell a different story? What if this moment God wanted to have a breakthrough and that call as Jesus called out to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee to put down your nets, get out of the boat and come follow him? What if that's coming to us, not in this zone, not in this zone, but in the zone in which we live And so we have to ask the question, how do I want to spend my time? How do I spend my life? Do I forever want to be questioning and overthinking and stuck in choice anxiety? Or do I want to say yes to God who follows me? And you may hear that and go, okay, great. Well, how on earth do I do that? We get in a second space with other Christians who can guide you. Get in a prayer room. Get in a huddle. Get time with God every morning and watch him work. And there will be a point where you'll get bored and you're like, I'm doing this again, nothing's happening. Many of you would have been here for the Tim Mackey sermon we played on video about the huckleberries. And in him telling that, I don't, I'm not sure, I haven't seen the one you guys saw, I saw it live in, in Ireland. But in the one in Ireland, and he may have said it here, he talked about the fact that for, someone challenged him and said, at the beginning of your quiet time, you need to just begin, instead of reading the Bible, because you're the, the Bible guy, you'll get to the Bible, but you need God's presence first. So sit and, and wait on God and open your hands. And he did that every single day for almost an entire year and nothing happened. But then something began to happen because he had to push past that point. And I believe that God is asking people now to push past that point because he has so much for us. And he wants to turn us into the living temple where God's presence and his love flows through for a world that deeply needs to know the love of Jesus, which is trending towards atomized narcissism and people just stuck in complete confusion and just a self-directed love, which leaves them utterly unsatisfied. So this renewal moment comes when we say yes, and I believe God is building something at this moment. So let's stand And let's pray. And I want to pray into this. So, first of all, we're just going to ask for you, Spirit, to come. We know you are here, but we pray, come, Holy Spirit, into our lives. 
We pray for Jesus' love to come into our lives. And if you just want to pray quietly with me, we just want to confess, begin with confessing of where we have chased experience. We've turned our lives into vapor at times. We've looked for the next thing, the greener grass on the other side. We've looked left and right instead of looking at you, Jesus. We confess that and we thank you, Jesus, that you forgive us and that your heart is for us. And now we place our eyes on you, Jesus. And just at this moment, we imagine ourselves by side the Galilean Sea. We see you, Jesus. We feel the nets around us. Nets of the world, nets of relationships, nets of expectations, nets of our plans, our dreams, what the world thinks. We feel them in our hands, the ties, the binds, the rope. But we hear the loving voice of Jesus saying, put down those nets. And so just now spiritually, we actually just drop those nets. And in Jesus' name, I just want to pray against any way the powers and principalities of this world, walking, working through the structures of this world, have bound people in nets in this room. And in Jesus' name, we want to break that. And we proclaim Jesus as Lord above all else and any spirit that is not of God. We just ask them to bow down before Jesus and to go. Anything which entraps and God, we pray against any kind of love which is misdirected at things which are not of you, the idols in our lives. Father, even love which is messed up where we, we, we live in shame, we live in self-critique, we live in self-hatred, we, we pray against that. And instead, in its place, we think of the cross, we think of your work, we think of your grace. We think of the resurrection divine power that comes from the grave. And we say yes to that at this moment. And Father, we think of Father Zebedee sitting in the boat. The disciples' identity. And God, we think of our self-created identities. The identities perhaps even given to us by others, by the culture the task of trying to create an identity broadcasted to the world. And just as the disciples at that moment got out of the boat and walked towards their new identity in Christ, we want to do that at this moment. So we lay down all human-created identities that are not of you, and we say yes to our identity in Christ. We say no to worrying what others think of us. We say no to fear of man and fear of woman, fear of humans, what they think of us. And we say yes to faith in you. And Father, as our feet start walking away from the boat, as our feet start walking away from the nets, Father, give us courage. Help us in those repetitive steps to build something, to focus on you ahead of us. We don't need to do this in our own strength. Those minutes, they don't have to be like, gazillion minutes a day, eking out some religiosity. Father, we want to spend minutes with you where you change us. You overwhelm us with your love. So God, we ask for a reversal at this moment. As people come to church less, 
as people fear commitment. Father, we want to commit more to you. We want to be your living temple in the world. Build something new amongst us. We ask and pray in this moment.